Well, good morning. Uh, this uh, today we're sort of continuing on in what is kind of turned into like an accidental sermon series on First Corinthians. Uh, we didn't necessarily plan it that way, but uh, but the readings have sort of lent themselves uh, to really focusing on uh, these lessons uh, from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and and I love this reading uh, in particular. Uh, you know, I, I realize that as, as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, you know, I should love all scripture, uh, but there are some parts that are just like more special to me than others. And, and some that are, I just find incredibly profound and, and incredibly beautiful. And, and I really love uh, the way that Paul uh, addresses sort of this tension that exists between knowledge and, and love. Which makes me think, if, if you had a choice, or if I had a choice between infinite knowledge and infinite love, which would you choose? And not which one do you think you're supposed to choose. Uh, which one would you actually choose? If you could make a choice between infinite knowledge, between knowing all things and having insight into the, the wisdom of God and, and understanding the inner workings of all creation. If you could choose between that and, and this infinite sort of self-sacrificial love, which would you choose? I have a sneaking suspicion that most of us would probably choose the knowledge most of us, we want to, to know things. We want to understand things. We, we like to be right. And so this notion of, of having this great infinite wisdom and knowledge and, and insight into the mind of God is, is very attractive to us. Because after all, knowledge is what? Knowledge is power. Right? To, to know and, and have wisdom and knowledge, it's, it's often to have freedom. To, to have power, to, to sort of be able to freely choose what you desire, to, to have control over your own destiny. And, and so just imagine in that desire for freedom, imagine how helpful it would be to be able to understand the implication of every single choice that you made. To be able to look at two options and pe to be able to see weeks or months or years down the road of, of what would happen if I chose this versus if I chose that and, and to be able to see into the future for that. Uh, imagine how free would, we would be. Imagine how much power we would have if we had this infinite knowledge and, and wisdom about how the world works. But love, on the other hand... Love often demands something from us, doesn't it? Where, where knowledge maybe grants us freedom, love often restricts our freedom. Because love demands that I consider the other first. Love demands that I set aside what is best for me and first consider what is best for my spouse or my child, my neighbor, my friend. Love can be restricting. Love is something that I believe will always ask something of us. It will demand that I set aside what I want, what I need, to ensure that the person next to me is taken care of. And it's because of this that I think most of us, given the choice, would choose to have infinite knowledge as opposed to infinite love. 
And you see, this tension is precisely kind of what Paul draws us into in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what we read just a moment ago. And, and what we see here is there was this issue that had arisen in the Corinthian church as a result of this newfound knowledge of the gospel. That, that the Corinthian Christians, whether they had been Gentiles before or Jews before, they saw this knowledge of, of the gospel as something that sets free, which it does. They recognize that no longer do we have to work, no longer do we have to toil, no longer do we have to offer endless sacrifices to be certain that God accepts us. Because of the gospel, now we are free. And they were led to believe that that freedom allowed them to live as they pleased. One of the ways is, is what we addressed a, a couple of weeks ago is that they saw themselves free to live sort of these sexually liberated lives. And, and Paul addresses that matter in detail. But what we come across today is they saw themselves free to eat as they please, particularly eat of this food that had been offered as sacrifices in pagan temples. And, and to this idea, Paul, he says, you know, knowledge may say one thing, as far as that issue is concerned. But love, love says something very different. Here's what he says in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This is another sort of sin-justifying slogan that had been thrown around in the Corinthian church. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This so-called knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So this knowledge or, or expertise, it may cause some people to think that they are superior and free in their choice to eat of, these, of this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But Paul says it's, it's simply a facade. That, that they're just sort of puffed up in their knowledge. This imagery kind of makes me think back to, to my college days uh, where I can think of, of many, uh, many a Friday night's uh, where my meals uh, didn't consist of a very well-balanced diet. It primarily consisted of me sitting on the couch um, and eating beer and or eating potato chips and drinking beer while watching TV. And if you've ever eaten an entire bag of potato chips, you will know that in a sense, at least, it does fill you up. But in reality, you're really just bloated. <laughs> You didn't eat anything of any substance. There's no nutritional value to that kind of thing. You did nothing to actually build up your body. You're simply bloated and puffed up. And that's what Paul says knowledge without love is. It's to simply be puffed up, bloated. But love, on the other hand, is what builds the church. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He continues, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So in contrast to the one who thinks he knows some, something, the one who, who thinks he has wisdom, Paul sets in contrast to that person, the one who loves God. It says the one who loves God knows something more essential than the one who simply thinks he has this knowledge or wisdom. The one who loves God knows that he is known and loved by God. 
So Paul's introduction to this whole matter regarding food sacrifice to idols is really rather simple. He says that knowledge by itself is incomplete and it is insufficient to form a faithful sort of Christian morality or, or set of ethics. But that it requires something else. Knowledge needs to be paired with love. And so after he sort of sets the table here, he then applies it specifically to the issue that's going on here. He says in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul grants that according to their knowledge, the Corinthian Christians are at least to some extent correct in their thinking. That, that food that has been sacrificed to idols, it really hasn't been sacrificed to a real God because after all, we know that there really is only one God, the Father for whom and by whom all things were made. And, and there's really only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made and, and through whom we exist. Now, it's worth noting that this, this is not sort of the end of what Paul says on this matter, because if you jump ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul comes back to this very issue. And there he actually says, well, it may be true that, that that food hasn't really been offered to a real God. The spirit that is at work in all idolatry is the spirit of Satan and, and his demons. And so to participate in these tables is to actually participate in the table of demons. So in light of that, don't eat it. But before he gets there, he says something different. He approaches it in a little bit different way. And, and in fact, he approaches it in light of something that is perhaps more essential to, to the way that the Corinthian, the Corinthian Christians are to approach this issue. He says this, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So knowledge may say one thing. Knowledge may say, I'm free to eat as I please because these idols are not real, but love says something very different, doesn't it? Love causes us to look at all things and say, what about, what about my brother? 
Uh, what about my, my sister in the faith? What about that person who, who is weak? What about that person who, who's maybe new to the faith and, and doesn't have the same understanding or, or maturity that I have? What about that person? What if my actions cause that person to stumble into idolatry? If that's going to happen, well, then I'm not going to eat at all. In fact, Paul goes so far to say, if, my, if eating meat is going to cause my brother to stumble, I will do the unthinkable. I will go vegan, right? <laughs> and I'm sure he'll make sure everyone knows about it. So, just a little vegan humor. I apologize to any vegans in the room. I harbor no ill will toward, toward vegans. Now, I think this is a passage that's perhaps easy for us to kind of just pass over because the last time I checked, I don't think any of the meat at QFC or Trader Joe's has been offered in sacrifice to pagan deities. I don't know where you get your groceries, but... And, and I, I can only just imagine going to a restaurant and, and you sit down, you get the menu, and you, you ask your, your server, can you tell me, tell me about the steak? You're serving. Oh yeah, great. Uh, it's 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 great. It comes from a local farm. It's it's grass-fed beef. Uh, it's raised without hormones or antibiotics. Oh wow, that's that sounds really nice. Oh, I should also note it has been sacrificed <laughs> to the Roman goddess Venus. <laughs> I think I'll just have a salad. That's that'll be fine. Right. So we you know again, it sounds so. Strange to us. This is an issue that Paul addresses that doesn't kind of directly translate into our world. As so often we can see these, these clear parallels, but this one's a little bit different, and so we can easily just kind of gloss over it altogether. But I think to do that would be a mistake because while the particular issue does not directly translate into our world, the underlying principle through which Paul approaches this issue does translate. It does translate, and it translates very pointedly. Because the truth here that Paul points out is that knowledge without love is insufficient. That knowledge without love, it only serves to puff ourselves up, and without love, the church will not be built up as Jesus desires. Knowledge puffs up, but love is what builds us up. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you, where has knowledge caused you to maybe live solely for yourself? Where love is calling you to live for your neighbor? let, Let me ask that again. Where is knowledge causing you to live for yourself, to to live solely concerned with, with your wants and your needs, and your desires. Where love is calling you to self-sacrifice. Where where love is calling you to lay down your life for your neighbor. Where is love causing you to live for yourself? Or where is, excuse me, where is knowledge causing you to live for yourself? where love is causing you to live for your neighbor. What is it for you? Maybe it's not all that different 
than the Christians in Corinth. Maybe it's you love to, to eat and to drink as you please. After all, we live in a great food city here in Seattle. Maybe you love to eat and drink as you please, all the while your brother or your sister is battling against addiction to those things. And seeing you do those things may cause that person to stumble. Maybe you like to live a very lavish lifestyle, entering into to the temple of materialism. And you feel like you can say, hey, it's just stuff. This has no real meaning. So I can use it and abuse it as I please. All the while your brother or your sister or your neighbor is struggling to get by. Where is knowledge causing you to live for yourself? All the while love is calling you to live for your neighbor. What is it for you? I'm certain there's there's probably something for, for just about every one of us where knowledge is causing us to live towards selfish ends. Meanwhile, the love of Jesus is calling us to lay down our lives, to sacrifice for our neighbors, for our friends, for the person we come to the altar and commune next to. And maybe, maybe you're thinking, but, but pastor, I thought the gospel was free. Right? I, I thought that Jesus did everything. I thought it required no more work, nothing on my part. What, why are you now calling me to self-sacrifice? Now, why are you calling me to self-discipline? And, and to that I would reply actually much the same as, as Paul replies. I'd say, you know what? You're right. The gospel is free. Jesus has done everything. And because of that, you are required to do absolutely nothing. You have the grace and the love of God all as a gift. God doesn't need your works. But you know who does? Your neighbor does. The person sitting next to you does. The person hurting and in need does. Martin Luther, in in one of his most important works, uh, titled A Treatise on Christian Freedom, he, he puts it this way as he writes about the Christian life. He says this, The faith of a Christian can be summarized with two statements. A Christian is the most liberated master of everyone and subject to no one. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of everyone and subject to everyone. A Christian is the most liberated master of everyone and subject to no one. When it comes to your relationship with God, no one can place any demand on you. You can come before God. You are called His child. You are welcomed into His family solely because of grace. No one can require any more than that. You are perfectly free all because of Jesus. God loves you all on the basis of the death and resurrection of His Son. His death proclaims freedom and forgiveness. His resurrection proclaims eternal life with Him in His kingdom. And because of that, you are free. Don't point to anything else. 
Don't point to your, your discipline. Don't point to your self-sacrifice. Don't point to your devotion or how often you've read the Bible or how good your church attendance is. Don't point to any of it. Because you have it solely because of Jesus. When it comes to your relationship with God, you receive it all as a gift. But when it comes to your relationship to your neighbor, well, that's a different story, isn't it? When it comes to to loving our neighbor, that requires works. That requires sacrifice and generosity and discipline. It requires that that we lay down our lives for that person who's hurting and need. It, It calls us to say, oh, you want my coat? Here, take take my shirt as well. Oh, you feel you feel tempted when when you see me drink? How about how about I stop? And and how about I, I walk with you? As you strive for sobriety, you're hurting, you're in need. I'm here, let let me help. When when it comes to to loving our neighbor, it requires work. It calls us to even die for our neighbor. I I love the way the the writer of of Hebrews puts this in, in chapter 10 came across this this week in, in my devotional reading and it just seemed to connect so perfectly. The, the writer of Hebrews at this point, he's given this, this beautiful explanation of the way that the death of Christ has completely fulfilled the demands of the Old Testament sacrifices. And then he turns in and verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And then he says this, And let us consider. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't you just love that? It's as if the writer of Hebrews, he he observes all that has taken place through Jesus. And he says, hey guys, listen. Because of Jesus, the demands of the law are done. They are completely filled. You don't have to worry about whether or not God loves you. You don't have to worry about whether or not he accepts you into his kingdom. You you don't have to worry about if you've done enough or if you've worked hard enough or if you've offered enough sacrifice. You don't have to worry about any of that anymore. And because of that, What do you think we should do now? Because all that's over, how how should we live now? I've got an idea. What if we just, like, loved each other? 
What if we just spent our days encouraging one another and building each other up and laying down our lives for each other? What if our sole concern was love for one another until Jesus came back? Guys, imagine what our witness to the world would be as if our sole concern was loving and building one another up. Let's do that. Because knowledge, that only puffs up. But love, love is what builds up the church. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, you are completely free. But let's not use that freedom as an excuse to just return to to selfish living. Let's use the freedom that Jesus offers us as a reason and excuse to spend our days Loving one another. Because knowledge serves only to puff up. Love, on the other hand, love is what builds up the church. Amen?